Welcome everyone to episode number two of Personalization Outbreak. Last week, we had communication specialist, Dr. Nick Morgan, who talked about the challenges of virtual communication and the importance of authenticity and transparency in the midst of crises, especially one like this. This week, our central focus is trust. Our guest today, Dr. Jack Cox, is a board-certified family physician with over 25 years of experience who recently served as a senior vice president and chief quality officer at Providence Health Systems. Currently, Dr. Cox is a board member for the American Board of Plastic Surgery and the Theo Group. Jack will be sharing stories about the things he learned during his years of military service where he completed his residency at David Grant Medical Center at Travis Air Force Base. Now, there's someone who can talk about trust, it's this guy. Finally, our co-host, Dr. Scott Lacey, Associate Dean and Professor of Anthropology at Fairfield University, will take this conversation about trust back to Mali, West Africa, with stories about collaborative plant breeding leading to scientific innovation and explain how cultural DNA can help us respond to crises. Now, there's a lot going on here. I guess we're all going to be learning something new today. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Jack. I am so pleased uh, that you're with us today. Thank you. Really good to be here, Glenn. So what's been on your mind lately, Jack? <laughs> uh, <laughs> other than how to get out of the house, uh, it's, uh, I'm still doing a lot of uh, executive advising, uh, and it's been fascinating to me uh, the changes that are going on in the healthcare sector, especially with this major disruption. Uh, you know, this is unlike anything that we've ever seen, uh, and I think there's a lot that we can learn uh, from the lessons that this disruption is is teaching us. Well, I mean, isn't it fair to say, Jack, that uh, while we're in the thick of this COVID-19 crisis, that the reality is that many organizations and leaders were already in crises has transformation efforts to serve a much more informed and knowledgeable individual was already starting to disrupt the old ways of doing things. I mean, it made leaders uncomfortable and it exposed in many respects the limitations of efficiency-minded organizations and industries. I mean, would you agree that this type of a, or disagree that this type of a crisis is one that truly reveals what, real, what leadership really means? Yeah, you bring up such a good point, um, Glenn, and that uh, as I think I shared with you, uh, a, a future of Stephen Morrison in healthcare uh, said that we're 25 years into a 40-year transformation in healthcare. But that disruption comes at a very slow pace, in a pace that doesn't necessarily move people quickly out of their comfort zones. So you see the transitions in leadership slowly changing over time. Um, this trans, this uh, transformation that's happening now because of the disruption came on suddenly and it moved us into unknown territory. So I think you articulated it well. Uh, there's a different leadership style that's called for when you're moving into uh, a crisis that's known. Uh, for example, uh, how individuals get ready for a natural disaster that they know is going to come again, like hurricanes. I grew up on the Gulf Coast. We knew that hurricanes were coming, uh, developing leadership styles and processes for that, you know, required one set of knowledge and processes. Moving into the unknown takes a whole different style of leadership. Mm. 
and I think it also takes uh, personalization, if you will, to the next level. Um, a couple of thoughts on this. I've been reading, uh, you know, quite a bit and also talking to some healthcare executives about what their experience has been. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I found, for example, uh, and this also reflects back on uh, my military training, if individuals don't trust you in the day-to-day, -day, in the known, they're not going to trust you in the unknown. What a great so if they don't trust you in the known, they're not going to trust you in the unknown. So the expectation that a leader is just going to step out and suddenly be revealed uh, and everyone's going to follow them in a, in a crisis that presents unknown uh, circumstances is not true. So you have to work on being a leader when the seas are calm so that you can depend on your troops and your team and they have the respect and trust in you and you them when the storms come. So, so, so Jack, let's address this. What, what a fascinating point and it makes good sense. If you can't be trusted in the known, how can you be trusted in the unknown? So as leaders, uh, I'm sure that many of them are wondering just how many people trust them. And it's interesting because I have a, a statistic here, and I'm going to read this uh, from the Edelman Group, their uh, public relations and marketing firm, and they have this trust barometer. And they say that after uh, health authorities, employers are most trusted to respond effectively to the coronavirus outbreak. Now, based upon what you said, uh, we could have another level of chaos and crises forming. Having said that, what were some pivotal moments, Jack, in your career uh, and even in the military that taught you how to earn trust? Because I've got to believe that there, while there may be many people, many leaders that haven't earned trust in the known, they're probably scrambling real hard to try that, to try to claim some level of trust in the unknown. What would you recommend or what have you learned from your past? Boy, that, that's such a good question, Glenn. Um, you know, it's so fascinating when you think about the whole concept of leadership anyway. Uh, so much of leadership, uh, I think there's a, a misperception that a leader is someone with a title uh, and is held accountable. Uh, but what we know is the most effective leaders are influential leaders, and that is individuals who build that trust and, and people want to follow them. I asked my grandfather once, who was a wise old soul, soul uh, how will I know if I'm a leader? And he said, turn around and look back. Anybody following? Uh, so, um, That's so great. You know, I, I think that um, especially when you get into situations where you you have to move the dot, you have to get things done, hmm. um, developing that trust uh, so that individuals can lean on you and you become a, if you will, a weight bearing team hmm. that can handle the stressors. Um, you know, otherwise, what happens is your team starts to disintegrate. Uh, you start to have uh, uh, disenfranchisement within the team. Um, and also, you, don't, you, you aren't able to um, optimize each individual's contribution to the mission that you're trying to accomplish, whether that be a military mission uh, or, for me, most of my career, a healthcare mission. Um, and optimizing that contribution requires the personalization that you're talking about. You know, I, I need to know what your motivations are if you're a part of my team. Uh, we need to have a connection. And especially when we move into the unknown, I need to have faith in the team because there's no way that I can shoulder the weight alone. You know, a lot of people in healthcare now are talking about the value of transparency. And when you consider, you know, what's happening on the front lines right now, and, and I'm going to ask you specifically about that in a moment, uh, Jack. Uh, but 
it's a time now where I think everyone is recognizing the power of individuality, where people are really not just discovering what one's capabilities are that they had never seen before, but just the magnitude of courage that one has when they put themselves into the thick of wanting to be part of the solution. I mean, when you talk about hierarchy, and I'm going to ask Scott to talk about this in a moment and to provide perspective, um, I think that now we're learning the power of flat organizations. I think that there's so much to learn uh, from the front lines up, uh, just as much as from the top down. And we've talked about these things, I think, more theoretically in the past, but I think we're living that in the present. You know, Scott, why is it that hierarchy uh, is, in many respects, being disrupted um, at, at, a, at a time where trust is at a premium in this state of unknown? I mean, it, it, right, it's because things are failing, right? The system is failing. The, the standardized system, which for, the, for, for many people, not the whole population, but for many people that are alive today, and it has been carrying the load. It's been keeping us going. It's been keeping the paychecks going. It's been keeping the businesses running. It's been keeping services running. But that literally stopped a few weeks ago. And the reverberations of that stoppage are only making it more and more clear how deep the dysfunction truly is in a standardized world um, in terms of we've got a pretty cool looking standardized predictable world, but underneath that simulacrum, underneath that, 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 that facade is a very, very dangerous, um, and, and I wouldn't even say dangerous too much, but it's, it's dangerous if we don't recognize it, but it's, um, uh, it's full of opportunities, right? So it's a dangerous sea underneath us that, that, that we're ignoring. But that sea is basically the source of everything that we need to get through this in a better way, not to return to a, uh, an old normal, but to return to a new normal um, or to go to a new normal that literally is more in line with what Jack is saying. I mean, I loved, I loved his um, main, the big thing I'm taking from him right now is this, this, this idea that um, when we're in the unknown, right, we require a different type of leader. And we've been very good at standardizing not just work and not just our operations, but in standardizing leadership. And what we're seeing now, I think, amongst leaders who are, are drawing us in are people who are more authentic, who are more driven, not by a standardized approach, but by a human-centric approach. What did Jack just say? I need to know your motivation if you're on my team. That's authentic leadership. That's leadership for being in the unknown. So when I'm in an organization where I've been trained, not just in the organization, but prior to getting into that organization, to follow that boss, do whatever they say, don't get in their way, just make their vision happen. Um, I've been turned into an automaton, and I've been specifically trained not to offer up any ideas or perspective that might strengthen the team for fear of weakening it. And so I love this inclusive leadership that Jack is 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 uh, fostering and, and helping to model for all of us because ultimately um, what he's talking about is the sort of leadership that I would hope for in, in a crisis of the unknown. So, so Scott, let me shift back to Jack. And Jack, you know, we talk about this age of standardization as if it's evil. And, and that's, not, that's not what we're trying to say here. I mean, we, we clearly need some level of standardization. I think what we're talking about is how can what we're learning from individuals and the, the, and the value that personalization brings help us strengthen and recreate and redefine new standards for success in today's personalized world? I mean, if there's an industry that's been standardized for over 100 years, it's been healthcare. And, uh, and so I, I, within the context of the, of the comment I've shared, uh, Jack, what are the biggest challenges? In fact, let me say it a little bit differently. Take us inside of the minds of the doctors and caregivers right now. I mean, we're, we're hearing about the deployment all across the country in all of these courageous efforts, but what are they thinking? What are they feeling right now? Well, I, you know, this, this really is for many individuals, if you will, an oh crap moment. Hmm. Uh, it, it's what, 
what you train for. Uh, and many hospitals have disaster plans, you know, when the bus gets hit by the train or whatever, and you've got a lot of uh, casualties coming in. Uh, this was, you know, really stressed after 9-11 uh, when hospitals got stressed with mass casualty uh, types of scenarios. Uh, but all of those scenarios are meant to be short term. So mm -hmm. you deal with it for 24 hours and then it goes away. This is a much longer draining type of uh, crisis. Um, and, you know, to your point, I think that uh, hierarchies get flattened you know, in situations of crisis. Uh, and especially if you've got good leaders that trust the teams. Standardization of approach is important. Uh, but what I've seen in organizations, the couple of organizations that I've been working with, is that there's an ability and a expectation that individuals who uh, identify better ways of improving that process given the current circumstance, <laughs> have a, a way and a voice to surface that and it's quickly adopted across the whole organization. So bureaucratic uh, barriers for that are, are taken away and there is a trust of the organization and the individual who's on the front line and an expectation of the individual that, hey, if I come up with a better way of doing something, you know, a better way of using my PPE, my personal protective equipment, a yep. better way of getting patients through, uh, a better way of turning things over to make them more efficient. I need to share this because the whole organization needs to benefit from it. So I think we're seeing, you know, this stepping up in organizations that, to your point, foster this personalization and recognizing that Standards are important, but standards need to be improved. And stressing the standards you know, is, is no better time to improve it than finding out what are the faults in the standard that when we had, you know, money and time, we could afford to put up with the inefficiencies of a standard. Mm, well put. So and just so I'm clear, and if you could elaborate more, because I think our audience would want to know more about this. If there's a moment in this crisis uh, amongst doctors, I mean, let's put put let's go back to your peer group, the chief quality, the chief medical officers. If there are new, let's say, procedures or protocols that they feel that can be deployed in the moment, first of all, is that a reality? And if so, how do those things get? To, how do those? Uh, new protocols and standards get deployed at a time of crisis like this, Jack? You know, um, great question. And I've seen, uh, you know, organizations where it doesn't work well and where it does work well. Mm. Where it doesn't work well is when you're only including a senior tier of leaders who are talking to each other, let's say on a daily basis. Just had a conversation with an organization uh, yesterday that has 23 hospitals in four states. And they have daily uh, uh, clinical leadership rounds, but also those individual regional leaders have leadership rounds at the, the next two tiers down. Hmm. So that you have uh, individuals on the very front lines who have a method of surfacing improved ways of doing things, and then that makes it up to the senior leadership and gets spread uh, among everybody. So it's really recognizing the potential contributions of the individual and asking the question, does anyone have a better way of doing this? Um, and, you know, I think it's like Stanley McChrystal brought out in Team of Teams, you've got to have faith that the people on the ground are the ones who understand the challenges, but also will be the best ones to come up with the solutions. You know what, Jack, you bring, that was so, that was, that was powerful. And, and it brings me back uh, to something I just wrote uh, in my recent article on Forbes called uh, leadership will change forever after the 
uh, coronavirus pandemic. I, and I and I'd like for you to react to this statement because I think in many ways you just told the story. We must stop ruling by standardization and start leading in an age of personalization. How do you react to that? It seems to me that that's already starting to happen in healthcare. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um, and it's not just the standards in care that we get sucked into, it's the protocols and standards uh, of healthcare administration in general mm. that have been in place forever. Uh, and realizing that, again, when you've got the luxury of time, uh, that inefficiency or these legacy ways of doing things uh, that have been inefficient but tolerated uh, need to go away. And, and they don't help you uh, in transformation. Uh, they get in the way of transformation. Mm. And especially when you're challenged with a crisis like this, uh, they impede your ability to react quickly and to improve quickly. Yeah. So, so Jack, do you, do you think that what, we're, what healthcare physicians and caregivers and how they're communicating uh, – do you think that that's going to remain intact uh, after this is all said and done? I mean, do you think that those will now become the new standards? You know, that's why I'd asked the question earlier of Scott, you know, uh, given his background of civilizations who have on stress, you know, what are the things that, uh, and what are the circumstances that allow this to be carried out? Um, I'm hopeful and this may sound crude, but I'm hopeful that a lot of these changes are going to stay in place. Uh, for example, I was uh, uh, talking yesterday in the advent or the adoption of telehealth, uh, which has been resisted in a lot of uh, areas, um, you know, has now become standard. Uh, I'm hopeful that a lot of these changes are going to be adopted and uh, maintained, but it's going to be because the financial fallout to the healthcare infrastructure is going to be severe. Um, I haven't talked to a single system that isn't expecting huge losses, uh, you know, uh, going forward. I, I, and I wonder, Scott, and you probably can speak to this much, much better than I can. I think if you go through a crisis and then you get back to what is a semblance of, nor of normalcy, it may prevent those changes because, all right, we're back to normal. If you go through a crisis and it alters the landscape, you find that normal doesn't fit anymore and it forces you into new ways of doing things. I think that this is going to force healthcare into a new normal, if nothing else, because financially we can't afford to do it the way we have been doing it. Great point. Scott, jump in. Yeah, this, it's, it's scary how much this reminds me of, and go with me on this, but uh, essentially plant breeding and sort of food science, the people that aren't trying to help people through essentially healthcare, but through feeding them. Um, up until, say, like the 1970s and 80s, and even into the, the 1990s, um, we had this standardized approach towards plant breeding um, in the world's most hungry zones, right? The toughest places to grow food. Talk about disorientation, talk about uh, disruptor, uh, places you can't grow food. Well, how do we do that? It's failed, the system has failed. Um, so what they tried to do was to come in with a standardized approach where there's a singular boss, which is scientific method, and we create this process and these products through this efficient mode that has basically fed a lot of the world, and we just reproduce that. We replicate that and we just push it. No matter what, if it doesn't fit, you force it to fit, and all of these places. What we found out though, is that the more we tried to fit science into these unique zones, the science didn't necessarily, at least modern science, the contemporary science didn't really come from specifically. Um, we found that it, you couldn't force the fit. And in fact, what happened was science started to fail and show its failings in terms of providing the service it needs to do. So healthcare is a service, for example, getting food to people is a service, they were failing. So the smartest people in the world couldn't get food into people's bowls. So what they decided to do was they jumped to a new level. They said, okay, we have to 
do a different approach in this terrain. And it's much more getting, it's getting close to what Jack is talking about, right? When Jack, when you're talking about the inclusive leadership um, and needing to know the motivations, the next goal was for scientific uh, plant breeding was let's step back and let's not do scientific plant breeding. Let's do participatory plant breeding. Let's bring in these farmers who actually have been growing food here for a long time to actually be part of the process and tell us what we need to do as scientists. And that was kind of cool because it really helped to move food science and, and help us to feed and get calories to places that were having troubles getting calories. However, what we found is that too was a limit because it was standardized because who was still in charge? The scientists being fed up information from below. So a few of us in this crew kind of went rogue and we went and we did what you call, Jack, uh, the leveling of the leadership. And we said, screw participatory plant breeding. Let's do collaborative plant breeding. Let's put scientists here. Let's put farmer here. And let's make sure that both of them can help each other in their own unique ways. Farmer knows the local layout. Farmer knows what's possible based on existing resources and existing human potential. Scientists know what could be possible if none of that was true come together, and sure enough, what we were able to find in small-scale studies throughout Mali, West Africa, was that when we leveled the leadership with scientific innovation with regard to creating food solutions, what we found is that the most inspiration and the best ideas, the ideas that cost the, less, the least amount of money and had the most amount of impact, were those that came from the village, from people that many of whom couldn't even write their name. Jack, you want to respond to that? Uh, you know, it takes somebody with uh, Dr. Lacey's incredible intelligence and background to go from healthcare crisis to plant breeding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. What we found in uh, uh, several of the systems, you, you know, there's, there's been this move to systemness in healthcare. And the problem is, is that it ignores the, uh, the needs of the local uh, health. All healthcare is local. But the attempt to systemize it to a corporate office in a big city uh, oftentimes doesn't work. And uh, what, I, what I'm seeing right now is a flipping of that pyramid, if you will, and the system saying, what is it that I can do to help you with patient care and the crisis in your area? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the... The crisis in Lubbock, Texas is different than uh, Los Angeles, is different than uh, Alaska. Uh, but the system plays a role in, for example, uh, we have a need for more ventilators, more personal protective equipment. How can we as a big system acquire that and move it to where it's needed uh, the most? Or how can we identify those practices, those better practices that bubble up mm. in Odessa, Texas, and make sure the people in Fairbanks, Alaska hear about it, um, you know, so that they can improve the way that they're doing things. So, so, so Jack, are you seeing this, uh, 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 well, let's just call it a greater level of interconnectedness and interdependence amongst systems across states throughout the United States? Um, seeing much more cooperation and collaboration, uh, people realizing that we're all in this together. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and did that happen organically, Jack? Or was, do you think that it, I mean, given what you know uh, about your 25 plus years as a, an executive in healthcare, does, do those things just happen organically or does it take someone, especially, I mean, we know that healthcare has a, in, historically has been somewhat insular to these types of things. What has to happen for something like that to occur and, and build upon it? I think, uh, you know, as we've been talking about, I think it takes leadership and uh, leaders with a, uh, a different mission at heart. Uh, instead of how do I keep my organization the most competitive yep. and successful in this crisis, uh, for example, in New York, you're hearing all kinds of uh, examples of hospitals reaching across the aisle and saying, hey, you know, we've been competitors for the last couple of decades, but we need to face this together. I've got an extra ventilator. Do you need it? So it's really this 
we're in this together for the greater good of the community rather than we're in this, you know, I'm in this for me and the heck with you. Well, um, not happening everywhere, but I think there are some wonderful examples of leaders reaching across the aisle, realizing that there's a greater uh, good that they need to uh, uh, aspire to. Well, and that's the power of leading in the age of personalization. So let's, uh, let's shift now to more, let's talk more about solutions, Jack. You talked, and you, you just touched upon it earlier, but you've talked about this with me before. You say that during times of crisis, it helps to have a weight-bearing structure to lean on. What does that mean? Um, weight-bearing to me means that, um, you know, when, when the stressors come or when the crisis comes, you know that the individuals in your group will be able to deal with it. And you won't see this mass panic. Uh, it's, uh, you know, to use a military analogy, it's when the bombs start falling, everybody doesn't run for their own fox, uh, foxhole. It, it's really about people coming together to meet the challenge head on rather than the group disintegrating into uh, a bunch of individuals panicking and running out the door with a, their hair on fire. So that's the, the weight bearing, the ability to come at this as a, as a team, realizing we've got to have each other's back. How do you multiply, and this may be an unrealistic question, Jack, but, <laughs> but how do you multiply this weight bearing structure in society where, I mean, let's face it, there's been such divisions in society more than ever before. Yet we all have to find ways to lean on each other. And, you know, we've learned this uh, through social media, but, um, but, but now we're at, at, time, at a time where people are much more vulnerable than ever before. And we do have to lean on each other. And, you know, I, I have found myself uh, creating a, a greater bond with my family than I had already had. And, and I see that with friends as well. But how do you scale? a weight-bearing structure? Boy, you know, Scott's probably uh, much more uh, qualified to answer this question than I am, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you, you know, my view of the world. Sure, and then Scott, why don't you jump right after Jack? Will do. You know, I, I, I think that what we're seeing right now, Glenn, in our country, unfortunately, uh, is a result of chipping away of the infrastructure and the trust uh, and the uh, common, uh, the sense of common good uh, that has held our country together for so so many years. Um, there has to be transparency. There has to be integrity. There has to be trust. There has to be a sense of uh, I'm a part of this whole, and the whole is there to help serve me as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's how how am I recognized? Uh, and instead, I think that we're seeing the uh, fracture uh, and tribalization in our society uh, when, that when the crisis hits, uh, the barriers and the lack of trust uh, are so strong that they keep us from coming together and being weight bearers. Uh, it's like the cracks that you see in foundations of buildings that don't allow them to stand up over time or to the stresses or to the earthquakes that hit. Uh, we don't have that nimbleness, that flexibleness, uh, that strength that comes together. Uh, each you know, party is looking out for their own goods and, and believing different stories. Um, fortunately, I think, uh, to your point, I've never felt stronger in uh, family relationships and friends and I'm seeing the community that I'm in, a rural community, starting to take care of each other and do little things. Like uh, we had neighbors yesterday drop a, a flowered plant on our front porch. You know, we're still a couple of weeks away from spring, but that simple act of kindness did so much. And it, and it let us know we're part of a larger whole, and I will do whatever I have to do to make sure my neighbors 
uh, are doing okay. Uh, but Scott, like, you know, what are your thoughts on this one? Well, my first thought is that talking to you right now is like getting a flower on the porch. I'll tell you what. Um, <laughs> I feel a lot better. Um, but what I would like to say is, I think, I, I mean, what what you've been just talking about, what Glenn's been talking about, in many ways, I think you gave the answer that you're both t- trying to 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 sort of check out with each other, and that is the weight bearing structure that we need to lean on right now is the one that you're leaning on right now, and that is our society. And I think, I think it's important for us, and this isn't an answer, this is kind of a question and a challenge for all of us, including me, and that is, why is it that in a moment like this, when uh, on many levels, the normalcy has completely fractured, um, why is it that we're finding great strength and resilience within the micro levels of our society, meaning family and friends, condo groups, neighborhoods, Whereas our distrust for everything bigger than those microgroups is only growing. Um, we need to think about this. Our, our, our level of analysis, our scale of analysis, um, when we're thinking about this crisis on the level of what we feel we have a control or a vote in or where we are recognized, that's my family, that's your family, that's your neighborhood. We feel our vote is counted. We feel that our voices matters or it's at least heard and that we actually can do something like put a flower on a friend's porch. But when it comes to the bigger picture, we're struggling as a society. And so perhaps one of the things that we can do is kind of uh, play around a little bit as an experiment and think metaphorically, how can we put flowers on porches of things that are bigger than neighbors? How can we do that for a hospital? Or how can a hospital do that for another hospital? Or how can a city hall do that for another city hall? Um, I, like, I, like I warned you, this wasn't an answer, but it was more of a challenge. And it's a challenge because I think your observations, both you and Glenn, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, we are. We're finding more resilience and, and strength in structures that are close to us. But yet we're pushing off those that are farther of us or farther from us out of distrust because they've failed us. Um, that's not an answer, but it's something we need to reconcile in terms of that's, that's cognitive dissonance. We're, we're basically trying to, to, to do two things. Uh, and, and it, uh, we're trying to do one thing and we're getting two different results and we're curious as to why. But Scott, this, know, just, go ahead, Jack. Go ahead. No, I'm just confused. Let's let's throw it back at, at, at both you and, and Jack because, uh, like I said, I need more flowers on my porch. <laughs> We've called a lot of things. Flowers, not one of them. But uh, <laughs> well, but 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 if I'm sorry, I'm going to jump in and then I'm going to ask Jack to re- react to what Scott's going to say now. But you know, doesn't this go back a little bit to flight, fight versus flight, or is it flow? Are you suggesting that we need to flow more? And can you explain what that means to the audience, Scott? Sure. Um, ultimately, you know, we, we get to these panic points, right? We kind of throw, not everything, but we throw a lot to the wind and we focus on what's most important for our survival, right? Where we get to our basic needs. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, when our basic needs or our familiarity are, 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 are lacking, um, we go into panic mode. And automatically, our neurology puts us into a couple different well-rehearsed responses. And generally speaking, those are what we talk about or the flight or fight. Um, If we don't like this unknown space that we're in, we either typically run away from it or we challenge it and fight it to the point where we basically can convince ourselves that what we're seeing is not true. And it's just everybody else doesn't understand. And so we just keep fighting and fighting. Um, there's another option and what, what I'd like to talk about is this option being something that's not from our biological genetics, right? Our biological DNA, which is this, this neurological system that tends to have us fight or flight when we're in the middle of this unknown circumstance, but it's a cultural DNA response that has evolved over time, um, through our connectivity to other humans. And that is this concept of flow. And the flow concept is to neither fight it 
but don't run from it, but to be with it, to experience for it for a minute, to see what that perspective is like, to, 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 to go ahead and breathe, to take a moment and to understand the unknown before reacting to it. You know, as a Peace Corps volunteer, that was what I had to do for a whole year. They plopped me in a village. I couldn't understand a thing. And I could have fought it and tried to turn them into an America that I could understand, at least a Mali version of it. Or I could have just run back home to the U.S. and just went on to grad school and pretended that that place didn't exist. But the only solution to me finding a space there and a place there as an individual and as a contributing individual to a community was to flow, to stop fighting, stop running away, stop covering the eyes, and just be... and see the world as I was, as it was being presented to me. And I tell you that flow choice that I made back then in that Peace Corps year or the year of adapting um, was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Because while it was one of the most painful years of my life in terms of just struggle, um, I came out of that a much, much happier, uh, better developed and more patient person than I've ever been before. So, Jack, do you think that we're flowing more in healthcare right now? Um, I think so. I think so, because um, I, I think to Scott's point, and I'm not going to try on the uh, cape of a social anthropologist, uh, <laughs> I think the flow is possible and necessary when there's a sense of a greater good. So, I'm here serving a greater good. And the greater good is served when I'm flowing with this group of individuals mm. versus a, a, a joke that always comes to my head when I'm thinking of the flight or fight. You know, two guys in bear country, a grizzly bear shows up, uh, one stops and starts putting on tennis shoes, and his buddy says, hey, there's no way you can outrun a grizzly bear. And the uh, guy putting on the tennis shoes says, I don't have to. I just need to outrun you. (laughs) You know, that's not flowing. That's the flight or fight and what's best for me is best for me versus this sense of social justice that we're here for the greater good. And if something goes wrong with the team, it means we're not serving our community and we're not serving each other. And my best interest is served by flowing with this group. So, yes, long answer. No, no, this is beautiful, Jack. So, Jack, let's head into the future and this, and this wrap this up. Uh, what do you think, I mean, based upon the numerous things that we've discussed today, which are all interconnected, what traps do leaders need to avoid? What, what, are, the, what are the natural traps we need to avoid going into the future? Uh, because we all know that uh, after things reach some sense of normalcy, and we still don't know what that looks like, uh, we're going to tend to want to get back to and hope that we can get back to our old normal. And I don't think that's going to be the case. But for those that want to make that decision, what what would you advise uh, leaders uh, with respect to the traps that they need to avoid? Um, boy, that's a that's a really good question, Glenn. You know, first and foremost, I think you need to be brave. Uh, be brave and uh, uh, take chances. Um, the, the solutions that we've had in the past are not going to cure the challenges that we have in the future. So it's going to take leaders who are willing to be bold. Um, and this is going to be a different way of doing business. Uh, I think there are a lot of norms that have been shaken up, you know, because of this whole pandemic. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, that being bold is, is, and those individuals who are timid and unwilling to be bold will be a a challenge. Um, the second is there are structures in place that will be barriers. Uh, but you know, there are still individuals that say, this is the way we've always done business, Mm. but I think we'll find that that no longer works. But still, there will be people holding on to that. And one of the concerns I have, especially as we talk about financial bailouts, um, financial bailouts for healthcare organizations that try to get them back normal, uh, that, is that really the highest and best use of those dollars? 
mm-hmm. versus what is it we're trying to accomplish and can we do that in a better way? Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the challenges that we've had in healthcare is the way that uh, providers are paid. Uh, hospitals are revenue generators because they do things to people. Mm-hmm. We know on average, about a third of the stuff that we do to people doesn't improve their life. Uh, these joint replacements, the hysterectomies, the other things that we're doing, the cardiac stents, yet we continue to do them because that's the way people get paid. You're rewarding a behavior. So if we change the scenario, change the paradigm that our goal is to keep a community healthy. What might that look like? Hmm. Uh, you know, might we start paying more for the social determinants of health and less for sick care and doing stuff to people that really doesn't improve their lives? So I'm hopeful that we have some of those bold leaders, but I think this disruption has actually helped the healthcare transformation. And I'm hoping that we'll see seeds of this across the country that will spread over time. Well, it, it, when I hear that, Jack, it makes, makes it sound like if there's ever going to be a time to do an overall, an overhaul of the healthcare industry, it's now. How do you react to that? I think you're right. Um, the challenges are going to be the parties that have been rewarded to this point by the old method and their desires to keep it that way. This is not only, you know, big healthcare systems, but think about it. It's device manufacturers, it's pharma, yeah. the insurance companies that we've had. Um, have they been sufficiently disrupted that will allow us to move forward? Or is there going to be this sucking sound of wanting to pull healthcare back into a system that rewarded them? Hmm. Um, I don't know. That's, that's a big question. So, so Jack, uh, any final words of wisdom as the wise inquirer? I would think that you'd have a uh, some uh, parting thoughts. Oh gosh, uh, no pressure here. <laughs> um, just, just so our audience knows that uh, when you begin to lead in the age of personalizations, we remove titles and give you a. Uh, uh, a leadership identity that represents what you solve for, meaning the things that uh, you get excited about in a big way. And uh, I think that you've heard in this incredible uh, interview with uh, Dr. Jack Cox that he's not, uh, he, he, he's never short of sharing a story or, or uh, as he would put it, um, throwing pebbles of wisdom uh, at you to think about. So, uh, so anyway, Jack, I thought I'd give that little uh, inter- or little explanation to our audience to give you time to put together some of those nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and I, I do think that, um, you know, the, the, the words, if you will, that I would leave individuals with, and, and I think Scott articulated this, we need to be present with this crisis and lean into it and be open to the lessons that can be learned. Uh, There's always a sense of resistance and going back to the ways things have always been. But I think that if you're open, I think that if you're present, that there's tremendous wisdom and lessons that we can learn from, you know, what's going on right now. And then, you know, to the question that I asked Scott earlier, how do we carry these learnings forward as we see things unfold that people are taken care of better or that uh, standardization is changed, that personalization and personal ideas are accepted more? How do we hold on to that and take it forward? Um, I don't know the answers to that, but I think that folks that come out of this successful will be ones who have been able to capture the lessons, to capture the importance of leadership uh, in the age of personalization, and been able to secure it for their future going forward. You are so eloquent, 
and I'm and I am so grateful for the time that you've spent in with us. And it, it, it's interesting if you think about what we've discussed today, and I'll take just a minute or less than that to sum it up. We're moving from diversity to inclusion. We're moving from tribal to human, from uh, from assimilation to authenticity. Right. We're moving from brand identity that has always defined the individual to one that is now driven by the influence of individual identities, regardless of hierarchy or rank. We're moving from mission to contribution. We're recognizing the value of individual contributors and what that means to help us uh, strengthen and or redefine what our missions should really be. And we're also moving from results to methods. Uh, we're learning that the forces of crises are allowing us to discover uh, new talents with, within individuals and capabilities that we never knew existed to give us better results. So I think that we're moving on that path uh, to finding that right balance. And I think it's that right balance that will guide us uh, with focus and understanding of what is in the best interest of a healthier whole moving forward. So, uh, Jack, I can't thank you enough. I, I wish we can continue talking. I mean, what you've brought to light here is extraordinarily timely and very important. Um, and I know that the audience is going to be or is extraordinarily grateful uh, for the wisdom that you've shared uh, and the kindness that you have uh, exemplified uh, in inspiring all of us uh, to look at this crisis as uh, what really is um, one of deep pain, but lots of silver linings. And with that, uh, Scott, any uh, closing remarks that you'd like to share based upon uh, what you've learned today from, from Jack? I just want to embrace uh, the lesson that, that Jack, uh, well, he gave us many, but one of the lessons he gave that I want to embrace and focus on a little bit moving forward is the, uh, one of the more recent things when you were essentially asking him about what do we need to avoid um, in terms of the legacy way. And what he artfully did was rather than bagging on the legacy way and talking about the legacy way as baggage and a chain that's blocking us down, he basically allowed the legacy way to still be and to inform us. But instead of going to what to avoid, he went straight to what to embrace, what to go for. And that is a leader that I will follow. So you can tell your grandfather, you got at least one, Jack. <laughs> and I'm not leaving. Scott, <laughs> thank you. Well, very good. Well, again, thank you again for joining us, Jack. Uh, we'll be in touch real soon. And, and Scott, thank you so much. I wish I could give you a hug right now. Here's an elbow bump for you. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and all my best to Patty, okay? You and I will be in touch soon, real soon, Jack. Thanks again. Thanks, my friends. Have a good morning. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day, and remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.